welcome to the weekly podcast for City Chapel at Slaughter Creek, the world's okayest church, right here in Austin. Get to know us better at citychapelchurch.com. We're so glad that you joined us today and hope you enjoy the message. If you have a Bible, Mark 7, we're going to continue on. We've been preaching verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark, and um, I've been enjoying it. We are now on to chapter 7. Uh, you knock over your cup there. Uh, it's all good. Um, Mark chapter 7, verse 1. We're going to read a few verses, uh, actually quite a few, I think 13 verses here, and then we'll come back and, and look at it. Uh, at least I think that's how it's going to go. Um, <laughs> And then after service, uh, you might notice we got some aloha uh, decorations all over. That's because we're going to have a potluck after service, and it is an, a, a Hawaiian theme. So if you brought some food, uh, that's great. If you didn't bring some food, I think some folks brought some extra. You can hang out and, and eat with us. I know I, I baked more cookies than, than, than I can eat, so I'll eat some. I've, I already had some this morning. And... Uh, and then I'll share with some of you all some of my world-famous chocolate chip cookies. Um, world-famous in Texas, anyway. They're, they're, they're famous around here. Um, but uh, anyway, Mark chapter 7, uh, verse 1 says, The Pharisees and some of—this says the teachers of the law. I think that the King James, or New King James, it says the scribes, the teachers of the law. That's, that, that's, that's who, who I'm, I'm going to focus on today. These guys are the focus of this story. The Pharisees and some of the scribes, teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And then in parentheses, Mark tells us, the Pharisees and all the Jews, <laughs> as every, everybody, <laughs> they do, all y'all, as they say in Texas, do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash in this particular way. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Now remember, the Gospel of Mark was written to um, people who were not Jews. The Gospel of Mark originally was written to the, the Roman church that Mark and Peter had planted. And so when Mark and Peter were leaving Rome, after they had planted the church, they were there multiple years, they were leaving Rome, Eusebius said that the people, uh, the, the people there in the church uh, just begged Peter to write down the stories he had been sharing with them. And so most believe, and the early church certainly believe, that the Gospel of Mark was technically written by Mark, because Mark was Peter's <clears throat> translator, but it was sort of dictated to him by Peter for the purpose, and this is what's important, of pastoring. So that's why I love the Gospel of Mark, because it is, it is a pastoral gospel. He's always saying stuff to help people grow in their faith. Now, that's not to say you can't grow in your faith if you read Matthew uh, or Luke or John. You certainly can, but that just wasn't the original intent the Gospel of Luke, for instance, is believed to have been written uh, uh, by Luke in conjunction with, with the book of Acts in defense of Paul as he was standing trial in Rome. So, the, so it's a very different purpose. It's still, it's still powerful. It's still wonderful. But I love the Gospel of Mark because it is very pastoral. He's always taking little moments to include us Gentiles. 
That's you. That's you and me. To include us in the story. See, like uh, Matthew probably wouldn't even explain the whole ceremonial thing because Matthew's writing to Jewish people and they understand, oh yeah, this is how we wash our hands. But Mark includes us Gentiles and says, oh hey, by the way, there's a special little way these guys will wash their hands. And he doesn't go on any more details than that because that's not important. What's important is that there's something called the tradition of the elders. And included in that is a ceremonial way of washing your hands. And the disciples uh, are not washing their hands the right way. And the Pharisees and the scribes see that. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law ask Jesus, why don't your disciples live? <laughs> That's a good question. Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. <laughs> I love how loving in Jesus was. Just loving and caring Jesus was. You know? I don't need to be somebody because I'm already somebody to you. <laughs> you hypocrites. <laughs> he, just, he just lays into them. He's laying into them not because he wants to be mean, but because the, the Pharisees and the scribes are teachers. So they are lending voice to the tradition of the elders, as it's called. And so he's coming hard against them because they are lending voice every single Sabbath. They are teaching in synagogues and at the temple. They are teaching that people ought to observe the, the tradition of the elders. And so Jesus says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go, he said, of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And it's real tempting for me to just start bashing their human traditions, like washing cups and pitchers and all that kind of thing. It's real tempting. But I'm not going to do that today because I don't want to, like, fast forward, stand before God on Judgment Day, and then have these guys mock me for my traditions. So I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to acknowledge we all have some traditions that we were brought up with, some traditions that our church taught us, some traditions that our country or our state, the, the Texas, taught us. We, we're all brought up with some traditions, and the truth is their traditions aren't any more silly than mine. And so Jesus says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word. That word nullify means to remove the authority of. Hmm. The word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. And so I'm going to keep going on to verse 14 next week. But, but today I want to focus on the scribes, specifically the scribes and the Pharisees. They are missing what God is doing. God is at work they have come down from Jerusalem to witness his work. Jesus is doing many things, and yet they're missing it. And I don't want any of you to miss what God is doing. I don't want you to fall short of what God is doing, both in this church and in this, this, this region, 
not just this church, but one chapel also, and other churches. I don't want you to miss what God is doing. In fact, God is writing a new chapter. And that's, and, and that's, that's, that's kind of the statement that, that, that I was getting as I was reading this, that there is a new chapter that Jesus is writing. And I believe that he's writing a new chapter here in this story. He's literally writing the Gospel of Mark, right? He's writing history. He's writing a new chapter in the story, but also in our own lives. I believe that God is on the verge of, of new things. And that baby's in agreement. New things. <laughs> Feed me. Feed me. New things. Lunch, breakfast is wore off. Come on, son. I need some fresh something from God. And, and, and it's, it's just true that the, the scribes and the Pharisees miss it because they're too busy hung up on their traditions. That thing which was written in the past. They're too busy reading about history and not making history. They're too busy remembering what God has done and not open to what God is doing in the moment. So I just want to declare to you that God, Jesus is writing a new chapter. And if you will allow him, he will open the pages of your life and he will begin to write a new chapter. Not, 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 not a repeat of the past. He's not going back. I believe he's writing a new chapter and he's doing a new thing. He's not the God, the great God of has been. He's the God of I am right now moving in this, in this city and in this church. We just, maybe it's because we just came back from a conference this week in Alabama. I'm fired up about what God, the potential the potential, the untapped potential. I'm, I'm thankful for the many things that God's done in this church over the past few years. I'm thankful for all of the, the miracles and the various things that has happened. But I just feel like there's a new chapter. Behold, I do a new thing, says the Lord. Doesn't it spring up right now if you open up your eyes? It's on the horizon. And I think it's going to be better than before. Because he's always going from glory to glory. He's always getting better. And he wants to write a better chapter for you. He wants to write a better chapter. I believe God is writing a better story. He's writing a better story, man. And that's, and, and that's the role, by the way, of the scribes. So the, 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 the job of the scribe, really, it's, the scribe just means copyist. Uh, but they had become, and that's why the NIV translates it, teachers of the law. They had become more than just writers. They had become teachers. Primarily, four to five hundred years before Jesus, there was a, a scribe named Ezra. And Ezra kind of elevated the role of a scribe because he not only wrote down the words of God, but in the book of Ezra, it says that he read the words to the people and then he accurately explained what the words meant. That's good preaching. Good preaching is not great jokes or well-timed pauses. Come on, somebody. Good, <laughs> good preaching is not, is, is not, is not spit. <laughs> it's not the amount of spit that comes out of your mouth. It's not the amount of shouting or aha. It's not, it's, it's not the amount of people that get fired up. Good preaching, good preaching doesn't translate flesh to flesh. It translates spirit to spirit. And the only thing that touches the spirit of man is the spirit of God. And the spirit of God has anointed one message, and it is the word of God. Not Harry's word, not Romeo's word, not anybody else's word, but it is the word of God that transforms you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And so the word of God, the, the scribes, Ezra started off accurately describing the word of God. That's a good teacher. But what had happened was, 
Over four to five hundred years, the scribes had also begun to include other things in their teachings, known as the traditions of the elders. These would not have been codified yet in an actual book, but roughly three hundred years after Jesus, they would become it would become what is known as the midrash, and so I think that's how you pronounce it in Hebrew. But at this time, it's just orally passed down traditions. And, but notice what they did. They, they, they took the oral tradition and they couldn't see what God was writing in the moment because they were too busy reading what they had written in the past. They couldn't see it. And I really want you to see it. I want you to, I want to stir up some hope inside of you today. If you could see what Jesus has planned for you, if you could see what he is writing, the pen that he has picked up, and, and he's getting ready to, to write the next chapter in your story, you'd be fired up. You wouldn't be discouraged. You wouldn't be longing for days of the past. I see people talking about, oh, wasn't it so great, sharing all their Facebook memories and all that stuff of churches they used to attend. <laughs> Small groups they used to be a part of. Stuff God used to do. We're so busy looking at the past that we've forgotten that God has a pen in his hand right now and he is writing a new chapter. There are new things. God is not the God of yesterday. He's the God of now. He says, I am. Not I will be, but I am. And, 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 and in this story, Jesus is writing. He's writing a new story. And, and by the way, just, just prophetically, I, th I think they have this scripture, Judges chapter 5, verse 14. Uh, it, it, it talks about this idea of writing. There was, there, was, there was a prophecy made in the book of Judges about the land of Zebulun because Zebulun was one of the four tribes that had helped Israel fight for their land. And so God promised to them that out of Zebulun they would raise up uh, some scribes, some, 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 some writing. Do you have that verse yeah, some came from Ephraim, but right down here, from Zebulun, those who bear a commander's staff, that's an odd translation, I don't know what that is, but uh, in the e, I think it's in the ESV, it says it's not, a, it's not a staff, it's a pen. I guess maybe the pen is mightier than the sword. But they're, they, they, they have, they have a, they're, they're going to, it's going to become a time when the, when, the, when the tribe of Zebulun would be able to write something for God. And the tribe of Zebulun is located in the area of Galilee. And all during Mark chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and now 7, Jesus is doing 99% of his ministry in the region of Galilee. And I just find it interesting that as he's in Galilee, some scribes come. And man, they, they should have had so much to write about. I mean, dead people being raised. Jot that down. <laughs> the sick are being healed. People are being delivered. Blind eyes are seen. Demons are running forth fear into pigs. Pigs are crashing down. I mean, all of the things we've been reading about from Mark chapter 1 all the way to say, there's a lot of good stuff to write down, but they don't write any of it down because when they came to observe Jesus, they were blinded by what had been written. And so I want to help you remove some barriers today. God is writing a new story, but there's some things that will stop God's story in your life. You won't get it if there are these things present. One, I mean, basically, what, what, what Jesus wants to do is he's writing a new story, but he's going to have to, like, use your old pages. He's going to have to write over your traditions. He's going to have to write over your upbringing. 
He's going to have to write over your Americanism. He's going to have to write over your Texan. <laughs> He's going to have to write over, like, your religion. He's going to have to write over your writings. Now, he never writes over his own writings. It's Jesus confirms the law of Moses multiple times. In fact, in this passage, he says, look, the, 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 like, Scripture says, honor your father and mother. That's the, that technically came from Moses. But it's inspired by God. So Jesus constantly confirms Scripture. He's not, he's not, I know some people want to rewrite scripture, and that's, that's not what God's into. God's into confirming what has already been written, but he is, he, he, he is happy to rewrite what you have written. He's happy to rewrite what your parents wrote. He's happy to rewrite the way that you were brought up. He's happy to say so that. That's why I'm all, I, I'm, I'm good with deconstruction. As long as you're deconstructing man-made stuff. But don't touch the Word of God. In fact, the Word of God remains. You cannot deconstruct it. It will deconstruct you <laughs> if you try to deconstruct. But the Word of God is eternal. And so what, what, what Jesus does is he doesn't come against the Word of God. He comes against man-made traditions. And so I believe there's two areas that man-made traditions affect. And these are the areas that Jesus wants to minister to. First off, our conscience. Man-made traditions warp our conscience. Your conscience is the thing inside of your head or your heart. I don't know. It's, it's on the inside. I'm not sure where it's located. But it's a thing that God has given everyone so that even if they haven't heard about Jesus or haven't read the Bible at all, they have a sense of what is right and wrong. Romans tells us that actually people in other countries who never get a chance to hear about Jesus, they still have a sense of what is right and wrong because of their conscience. So God has placed inside of everyone a conscience. And when you're born, that conscience is it's, it's like a compass. It's, it's directing you true north toward, toward God. And so, so even before you hear a sermon or read the Bible or hear about Jesus, you have a sense that you know what is right and wrong. Uh, anyone who's had children before, you know, like you know when they've done something wrong because they know when they've done something wrong because it's all over their face. <laughs> right? Because they, you feel guilty when you do something wrong. That's a conscience. And a conscience is a good thing. But the problem is, the, your conscience is, and I, and I don't know if you're taking notes, but if you're taking notes, you should probably write this down. Your conscience will adapt to the pattern of your behavior. Your conscience will adapt to the pattern of your behavior. It's like... Uh, Jan is a nurse. It's like, it's like your stomach. Your conscience is kind of like your stomach, right? Your stomach is a particular size based on your particular body and how much food you need uh, to have a healthy body. And yet, you know, when it gets empty, it starts telling your brain that it's hungry. And so your brain knows that it's hungry, and so, and so you, you go find the nearest Chick-fil-A which is always closed on Sunday. But anyway, so you're welcome for that. Uh, and and, and you, you look to feed it. You feed it until it's at a sufficiently full level. Then it stops telling your brain that you're hungry. But the problem is some of us really, really like food. <laughs> if you can't say amen, just say oh me. Some of us really like food. And so, you know, it's like we had three pieces of pizza and our stomach says I'm full, but I'm like, oh, this pizza is so good. I'm going to have three more pieces. 
I'm not eating for hunger. I'm eating just because I enjoy it. And then it's like, oh, man, dessert. Yeah, I should probably have. I, you know, did you save room for dessert kind of thing? And, and so it, it, we, we, like in America, like we're just so wealthy, honestly, that we just sort of stuff ourselves with more than we need. And what happens over time, your stomach starts stretching. Now, it's fine. The stomach will still work. It'll do what it's supposed to do. But the problem is, what used to make you full doesn't make you full anymore. Now it's stretched to an unhealthy level that if you eat as much as you feel full, now that's more than the size of your body needs, and so your body gets bigger. And that's not the scientific and medical term, but that's just the, the layman's pastor idea, that, that your stomach will expand. So some people will have surgeries where they will, you know, clamp the stomach and make it smaller. And that's, that's one way of doing it. Also, if you deny your stomach long enough, it'll start to shrink back to its original size. But also, you can have an eating disorder where you deny your stomach too much. And your stomach will shrink. And you feel full on a cracker. But your body actually needs more. Do you see how your stomach, it, it adapts to the pattern of your behavior? And that's just like your conscience. It adapts to the pattern of your behavior. Your stomach is telling your brain what it needs. And, if, and, if, and, if you're, and, and based on if your brain overfeeds it or underfeeds it, it will adapt to that. And, it, and it, it'll affect the rest of your body. Which, by the way, that's a pretty good analogy. Uh, a few weeks ago, I talked about that uh, the scripture in Ephesians chapter 5, also 1 Peter, where it says uh, that the husband is the head of the home, head of the wife, and the wife is the body. Remember that, that scripture? And, and so we, 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 we taught on that because some, some husbands, usually, it's, it's the husbands that get this confused. They think that because they're the head, that they're in charge. But no, Scripture says, submit therefore one to another, speaking about marriage, mutual submission. So who's in charge? Well, both of us. <laughs> we submit one to another. And, it's, and, and, and even if you just take the analogy of the head and the body, like it's very true. If you have a head and, 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 and you're driving around and you're on, your head is on a mission and your body says, I'm hungry. What does your head do? Your head starts looking for the nearest McDonald's or Chick-fil-A or whatever. Your head desires to meet the needs of the body. And that, by the way, is the role of the head. So every husband here ought to have a list of needs that his wife is needing right now and how he is planning on meeting those needs right now because that is the primary role of the head. Now, if the head says, well, well, we're not eating right now because, because we have to be somewhere, that's fine. But your stomach will start growling at you. <laughs> well, when... <laughs> and you can keep ignoring your stomach, but the growling will get louder and louder. Come on, somebody. Some... Mr. Head can complain about the growling, but if Mr. Head doesn't feed the stomach... Well, you just, just, that's, that's, that's your homework right now. That's, it's your homework, Mr. Head. Go figure out what you're hungry for. In fact, maybe, maybe I should do a sermon series, like starving stomachs and stubborn heads. Would that, would that, would that be okay? No? Okay, all right, I don't know. Because, because, because what happens is if you ignore your stomach long enough, it'll go quiet. And that doesn't mean everything's okay. That means things are starting to shut down. 
And it's not until the body dies that the head figures out that it was the body keeping it alive all along. <laughs> That's a good marriage tip. This isn't a marriage sermon, but I don't know. We're just kind of going, just kind of going with it, kind of going with it. <laughs> Maybe it's part of the story that Jesus wants to write. He wants to write a new way of, 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 of headship. You know, we were driving, drove to Birmingham this week, and sometimes you're driving and you want to get there on time, but the bladder <laughs> says, I need to, I, I need to stop. And, 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 if, and if that happens, I mean, right, Jonathan? You need to look for the nearest Bucky's. Because it may slow you down, but it's better than the alternative. You know what I'm saying? Like, so you got to listen to your body. <laughs> and, 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 but what happens is, though, back to the conscience, the conscience can be warped and twisted, can be affected. What, what, what used to satisfy you no longer satisfies you anymore. We expand our conscience through compromise. Through compromise, we expand our stomach and we expand our conscience, right? And so what used to satisfy you doesn't satisfy you anymore. You need to go further. You need to go further. You need to go further. And what happens is, as we expand our conscience, then, like, and, and this is the danger because then people will say, well, Pastor Harry, I prayed about it and I, I, don't, I don't feel bad about it. To which I say, well, yeah, you, you've expanded your conscience for the past 13 years. You're not going to feel bad about that because you have taught and trained your conscience to be okay with it. And the opposite is also true. Sometimes you can, you, can, you can have such a strict version of self-righteousness that you can shrink your conscience to the level that I have to do this and I have to do that and I have to do that and I have to do that and, do that. and after I've done all of that, then I'm righteous. And what happens is your conscience will shrink to the level of your self-righteousness. There was a lady in uh, Bible college, and she was one of our professors as she came in, and I noticed she didn't have any makeup on, and she didn't have any product in her hair, and her long skirts, and, you know, no jewelry. And, she, and uh, she did have a wedding ring on, and she shared her story that she was raised in a very strict, I guess you could say, strict Christian, like, sect. And it was, it was the kind that they didn't believe in wearing any kind of jewelry. They, didn't, they, they, they believed in, in, in homeliness was close to holiness. Because if you made yourself pretty, or if you, made your, if you wore a wedding ring that was flashy, it was made of gold or whatever, that you were, you were engaging in pride and arrogance, and you were, you were, you were showing off. And she was brought up under that. And then one day she went to another church that they talked about, you know, the freedom of Christ. And they talked about the love of God. And they talked about the beauty of everyone's body and how you can actually shop for different colors. And, and you can show your shoulders if you want to, Danielle. And uh, like these, these things aren't, these things are not sinful. Just because somebody a hundred years ago said that it was. The traditions of the elders and they grabbed some scriptures and twisted them and made them a, uh, fit their particular narrative. And so she said that she, her and her husband went home and they decided that they were going to wear their wedding rings because she was proud to be married. She wanted everybody to know that. And so she put on her wedding ring and she said that, that for months and months she just felt wrong. She just felt like she was doing something wrong, even though she wasn't. This is the power of conscience. Conscience tells you what is right and wrong, and it's not accurate. 
The, the scribes saw Jesus, who is clearly without sin, and it says they found fault with him, even though he clearly did nothing wrong. He found fault with the, they found fault with the disciples, not according to truth, but according to their traditions. They had violated their own conscience. And so many times when, we, when, when our consciences have been adjusted, which most of us, our consciences have been adjusted by our experiences, you cannot trust your conscience. So if God's going to write a new story in your life, you're going to have to hand him your conscience. You're not just going to go off of, well, this feels right and this feels wrong. You don't know what is right and is wrong. You just know what feels right and feels wrong. And so the truth is, you need to hand him your conscience. Jesus shows us how to do that. He says, he says, he says, he says Scripture says, honor your father and mother. That's how you adjust your conscience. You submit it to the Word of God. And for some of us, the Word of God is a bit too harsh for our consciences. We're like, oh, I think that's fine. And yet the Bible is clear that it's not. Okay, submit your conscience to God. It's not about what you think is fine. It's about what he says. So what happens is we need to submit our conscience. We need to turn over our consciences because your conscience is not Bible. Your conscience is, is just you. It's your stomach. Some of us have been eating too much pizza, spiritual pizza. We've been, we've been listening to too much Oprah. Back in the day it was over. I don't know who it is nowadays. But we've, been, we've, been, we've got a steady diet of YouTube, university, or memes, or Facebook. And, it, and, and, and all of the false teaching that we've heard has adjusted our conscience to be okay with things we never should have been okay with. And in some cases, to, to be scared of things we shouldn't be scared of. To draw boundaries. Some of us were raised in places that didn't have any boundaries. So as soon as we draw boundaries, we feel bad about our boundary. That's okay. You can feel bad about a boundary. But if you read in Scripture where God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of wisdom, you will actually use that wisdom for His glory. And it feels weird at first using some wisdom because you were raised on foolishness and people-pleasing, and a spirit of fear. That's just one example, and I'm just throwing it out there. But for some of us, for some of us, man, like, pornography will stretch your version of what is and is not okay. And you'll be okay with stuff that you were never okay with five years ago. So what, so what do we need to do? It's not about what I'm okay with. It's about what the Word of God is okay with. Should I look with lust upon a woman? Period. No, the answer is no, you shouldn't. That's what Scripture says. So, so don't do that. And so, and so, and so, so it's like the, the Word of God is what helps realign our consciences. And in this new season, I think God wants to reset your conscience. Second thing that God wants to reset is your desires. Notice uh, in, in the story, if we, if we go back to that, that passage in Mark, Jesus calls out the, the Pharisees, and I think it's, uh, verse 9, he says, you have, a fine, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. And he says, Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother is to be put to death. So in other words, this is really important to God that you honor your parents. But, he said, you say that if anyone declares that what they have been, uh, that what they have uh, is Corbin, that is, is dedicated to God, 
They don't have to share it with their parents. So what this is, this is a tradition that the religious leaders had started. And it worked for them because it worked financially. So, so what you would do is you come to the priest and you would say, look, I want to give all of my possessions to God. Sounds really spiritual. And it is, I guess. I want to give all my possessions to God. And they would say, great. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll put that down in the ledger that uh, Harry Fleming has donated all of his possessions to God so that when Harry Fleming dies, all of his possessions come to the church, come to the temple. And it's like, well, wait a minute. So really what's happening is you are donating all of your stuff to God after you die. Really, this is the religion of, of good intentions. <laughs> this is the religion that says, look, I want to positionally be, be fully all in with God. Look, I'm on the ledger. See, I went, I went to church. I prayed the prayer. I did that. But I'm going to continue to use my possessions for me while I'm alive. And then when I die, I'll give it all to God. It's the, it's the classic, like, 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 I'm not going to obey God with my possessions right now. Instead, I'm just going to imagine that I'm fully committed to God when I'm really not. Really what you're saying when you say Corbin, you're saying, I don't want to help my parents. I don't want to help my neighbors. I don't want to do the law that really talked a lot about helping other people. I don't want to do that. I want to enjoy my possessions. And imagine that that's also what God wants. And Jesus said, no, you have nullified, you've taken away the authority of God's word. Why? Because at, at, at the heart of it, you really don't want to help your parents. <laughs> and personally, I believe, and we were talking about this in the car, I believe that, that, that like, if you have parents that took care of you for the first 18 years of your life, I believe you owe it to them to take care of them for the last 18 years of their life. I just do. Now, whatever your family deems you is taking care of, like, that's on you, and you guys figure that out. But as for me, I mean, I've told my parents, like, hey, anytime you're ready to move on down to Texas, we got, we got a farm, we got... Because, 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 like, what happened the first 18 years, of, well, the first 20 years, actually, the first 39 for some of you, years of your life... <laughs> just being real keeping it real like like what happened like like i i ate every day and i didn't pay for any of it <laughs> right i was I, I was never afraid i was gonna miss a meal but i didn't pay for any of it right i lived in a house every day i was never afraid that i was gonna be homeless and i never once paid rent <laughs> i didn't pay for any of it right so so my basic needs you know, I, I had clothes to cover myself with, which I didn't pay for. I had a gaming system to play Nintendo, Super Mario Brothers, come on somebody, Duck Hunt. I didn't pay for. Like, we're talking like 18, 20 years of life that, that, that I enjoyed that I didn't pay for. So guess what? I'm happy to pay for my parents for the last years. Like health care, I didn't pay for it. If I go to the hospital, I break something, which I never did because Jesus likes me. And uh, just, no, it's because I'm cautious. That's why. Uh, but, you know, it's like they, they're going to pay for it. So anyway, I have a belief that we ought to use our resources, our money, 
and our houses and our vehicles to help our parents, our aging parents. Now, my parents are still out there on their own. They don't want to come back. I don't know if they don't want our food or the curfew, maybe, bedtime. I'm not sure what the deal is, but they're not quite ready to come under our household. But whenever they're ready, like we're open and ready to, to help them like in anything that they need. And I think that's the heart of honor your father and mother. Honor is not just merely with your lips. Honor is with your life. You honor your father. And by the way, this is, a, this, is a pro, this, is an, this is a commandment with promise. Jesus said, if you honor your father and mother, then the days will be well with you on the earth. Like God honors people who honor. God himself honors people who honor. You say, well, my, well, my parents aren't very nice. Okay, well. <laughs> uh, God still honors people who show honor, who are able to forgive, who are able to be bigger than where they came from, who are able to take the traditions of the way their parents dealt with stuff and say, no, that's not the way I'm going to deal with things because God, Jesus is writing my story. And my heart is different then my parents' heart, then my grandparent, my heart is different. My heart is to honor. I desire to honor. It's, it's, it's fun to honor. It's a joy to show honor. So maybe I'll just close with a, maybe an honoring story about my dad. Um, I didn't ask if I could share this, but I assume it's okay. That's why when you have a preacher for a son. But my, my dad was sharing with me the last time he was down. He was visiting for Peter, was doing his bodybuilding thing. And um, dad was visiting. We were up late at night talking. And we were talking about confidence. And I was talking to him about how, honestly, like we have some people in City Chapel who, like, they're, they're good people. They love God. They just lack confidence to step out in faith and allow, really, to allow Jesus to write their story. Like they're just timid. They're just like, I don't know. I don't. They just lack confidence. And so dad said, well, you know, something that really built confidence for me. And he shared his story. Because dad also, I think, probably is naturally a little bit like that. He's very quiet. If you've ever, ever met my dad, he doesn't say much. Like he's, he would never get up and preach or shout or, or do anything like that. He's not a man of faith and power. Um, he's just, you know, he's just kind of a quiet, good uh, role model. And so dad was saying that something really built up his confidence is when I was about, I, was, I would have been about six years old. Um, we, were, we were not doing well financially. Uh, I remember like we would, we would have cereal for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Anybody remember those days of cereal? Like, and, not, and not the on-brand, but the off-brand, like, like cornflakes. I remember one night eating off, like, off-brand cornflakes, tasted like cardboard. We pour sugar on it to make it taste better. With skim milk thinking, I think we're poor. I just, I get the vibe. I get the sense. Yeah, like I'm not, I was like six years old. I'm like, what do I know? But I'm like, I don't know. I think other kids eat dinner for dinner, you know? I just, but now I, now I really like cereal. So give me cereal at midnight. I'm good to go. But it's Captain Crunch, peanut butter crunch, by the way. It's not this nonsense cardboard tasting stuff. And so anyway, uh, you know, we were struggling, but we were making it. We were living on the church's parsonage that we, that we went to. Not because we were on staff or anything. We weren't pastors, but we, we were the cleaners. So I think that's how it 
worked. I think mom and dad, and they, they're watching online, they can correct me, but I think like we got free rent as long as like we cleaned the church every week. So we were there for, I don't know how many hours it took, but it was a rather larger, largish church. And so we were clean, we were the church cleaners. And dad said that they were taking up a special offering at the church and they talked about it beforehand. And, and I don't remember what it was for, but they were taking up the special offering and dad really wanted to give in the offering, but he just didn't have anything to give. And he really felt like he wanted to give $50, which back in 1986, 50 bucks would, 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 would go a little further than it goes now. It was kind of gas for the month, you know, for your car. And so it was a decent amount. And dad just had this heart, like he really wanted to give $50, but he knew they didn't have $50 to give. And so they go to church, they're there, they're singing, and then afterward they do the handshaking thing. Back in the 80s, everybody shakes hands. And, and um, somebody, somebody gave them Somebody slipped him a $50 bill in the handshake. I think we used to call that a, a hallelujah handshake. I think that's what it was, when there was cash in the handshake. And so somebody just wanted to bless the Fleming family, and it was like, hey, here's 50 bucks. And they didn't know about Dad's desire to give in the offering. And Dad said, like, you know, he got that $50, and he was so excited to give that $50. Like, he was, he was you know, he's, he, he said technically it would have been nice to use the 50 bucks, for the family, but he's like, I barely even thought about that because what it did for me is it, it built my confidence that God hears me. That little, little Harry Fleming, I think they'd been saved like five or six years at that point, didn't know a whole lot about God. They weren't like super spiritual people. Just like little Harry Fleming, like, like, like it's a little 50 bucks. It's not a big deal. It's not saving Bangladesh or anything. And yet God hears me. And he wants me to experience the joy of giving. And he knows that if I can experience the joy of giving, that I have it in my heart to give. And I won't keep it for myself, and I won't use it for gas for the car, back and forth to work, but I'll, I'll just give it joyfully. And so dad said, they, they, you know, they, they had the old offering plates back in the day. And so he put the $50 in the offering plate, and he said, I just felt so, so good. And he's like, you know, since then we've made a little more money than we used to, but no amount of money that you get can equal the feeling of giving to God and knowing it's making a difference, knowing all of that, but even just being able to give, having the heart to give. And you say, well, where did dad get that heart? Because dad grew up just like the rest of us, selfish, wanting to do what he wanted to do right? Had his own plans, his own dreams. How did he get a heart for God and for God's work and for God's mission? He let Jesus take his heart and rewrite his desires. Let him do that. And that's, and that's, that's really what it takes. As Jesus, like if, if the scribes would have desired something different, rather than to build their own churches, they would have preached the word of God, which was honor your father and mother. And if you want to give stuff to the church, go ahead and give it. That's great. But don't set it aside for the next 30 years so you don't have to do anything with it and then give it all to the church when you die. Because even though that makes the church rich, it makes people spiritually poor. But why, did, why would they teach that? Because they desire cash flow as opposed to spiritual richness and why would the people jump in on this oh because they desire to live with their stuff and keep it 
and feel spiritual. But Jesus is rewriting desires. He's, he's birthing new desires inside of us. Desires for, what, is it, what does the old hymn say? Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. <laughs> yeah, this is, our, this is our desire, that God would change our, our hearts. And my desire is that God would change your desire. So that you're not just trying to do things because you know you're supposed to, but rather that you would submit your conscience and your desires to the Lord. So would you just, uh, yeah, just pray with me right now as we, as we close. We're getting ready to close and, and tear down this and bring tables in and have a potluck and everything. But before we do, in fact, would you just stand with me? Could you just stand? We're getting ready to be dismissed. This will get you, get you moving. Look out for your coffee cups when you, when you stand. But <laughs> and if you would just, just close your eyes for just a minute, I just want to make an invitation to you to, to do something the scribes did not do. And that is to submit your conscience and your desires to God. To say, God, look, I need you. And I want you. I want to desire what you desire. I want to uh, realign my conscience with your word. In fact, that's a good starter. If God's calling you to get back into the word and to submit your conscience to it, would you just raise your hand with me and just say, God's calling me to that. I feel that. And I'm going to commit to that. That's really all we're doing right now. Father, we're committing right now to you to get back into your word, to read it, to study it, to understand it, in order to submit ourselves to it. Nothing better than the Word of God to rewrite our story and set us on a new trajectory. So we do. We commit to jump into your Word and to read it and to apply it to our lives in Jesus' name. Now, if God's calling you really to submit your heart to Him, for, to allow Him to change your desires and to come into your life and, and make a difference. Would you just raise your hands with me and say, yeah, that's what God's doing for me. He's calling me. I want to want what He wants. <laughs> I want to want what He wants. Yeah, Father, we open ourselves up to You. You see these hands raised in an act of surrender, in an act of openness. We're saying, Father, come fill us with Your Holy Spirit. Come change our desires from the inside. But the truth is we cannot follow the commands of God because at our, at, our, at, our, at our root, at our core, we just don't want that. We don't want to honor our parents. We don't want to forgive our enemies. We don't want to bless those who curse us. We don't desire holiness or intimacy with Jesus. So, Father, we're opening ourselves up, though. We want to want that. So change our want to. Change our hearts, Lord. Transform us from the inside out. Begin to stir up desires that you, for, for your truth, that line up with your kingdom and with this new chapter that you're writing. We don't want to step into a new chapter with old want to. It is a new want to that will radically transform and make this chapter the best chapter ever. Lord, stir us up to desire your presence. As a church, stir us up to desire prayer and intimacy with Jesus. Stir us up to desire to see his kingdom come and his will be done. Signs and wonders and miracles following those who believe. 
Lord, help us not to be satisfied with correct doctrine and <laughs> feel like that's enough. If it's really correct doctrine, then we understand that we are supposed to raise the dead and heal the sick and cast out demons. So let us not, let us not get comfortable with what we don't have and start making excuses and start criticizing other people. But instead, let us let change our desires to yearn for the better gifts, to yearn for the greater things. Yeah, stir us up. Plant in us a desire to do your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I love you all. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Be blessed. You're dismissed. Stick around if you want to be a part of the potluck. They might even put you to work moving some tables in here or something. Have a good day. <laughs>